Okay. Hey everybody, how you doing? This is Bobby A, and today I wanted to tell you about how much I really love the Hudson Music Digital app. Okay, now, check it out. It's an app that you can get for your device, and you can purchase books from the Hudson Music Digital Store and have them stored right on your device. The great thing about it is you always have it with you, and any content that might be video-related or music-related, is right there at your fingertips. It's a wonderful resource. I absolutely love playing drums and I couldn't imagine uh, not having that in my life. And I really, uh, if I could help facilitate that and have an impact on your life so that you could play drums, that means the world to me. All right, we're coming on a little late, but better late than never. Uh, this is Drummer Nation Live, the show where we talk about drums and drumming with some of the best in the business. And today is no exception, as I have my old friend John Riley from New York City. Welcome, John. How are you, brother? Oh, very good. Great to see you, Michael. Same here. We had a little trouble getting started, but I have a favorite line from Spaceballs, the movie, which is, even in the future, nothing works. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> You know, we knew each other years ago at North Texas State in the early 70s. And uh, I, to clarify, John was a rising star. I was a beginner. But I learned a great deal from him and many of the others at the school. And, John, I was just thinking, since you've become such a, a, a pro profound educator, back then we didn't have a lot of books. This was 73 and 4. There wasn't a lot of drum books, was there? No, there wasn't. And uh, it seemed like drum teachers in general were really frugal, too. So they tried to get as much mileage out of the books that were available as possible. That's why there's so many, you know, treatments of stick control and syncopation in those books. It's funny you mentioned those. That's what I was going to say. Syncopation, which is an excellent book still in wide use for drum set, but we adapted it to drum set. Stick control, same thing. The Belson book. I don't think even bass drum control was about uh, written for a kit, really, was it? Uh, I never really, I hate to say it, but I never really used that book. So I'm, I'm not that familiar with the origins okay. of it. But the thing I found interesting about, I mean, that made stick control and syncopation in particular, in particular um, really flexible was that there was very little text in there that would close your mind into what you could do with the material. And so that allowed people to, f to solve all kinds of problems by putting different kinds of treatments on, those, on the information in those books. 
and it still holds today. A lot of people still teach out of those. Oh, yeah. 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 Now, in the years following, I think you might agree, there was sort of a glut of books. Everybody and their brother put a book out, but yours have managed to, you know, weather the test of time and have become standards in percussion pedagogy. I'm going to compliment you on that. Well, thanks. I had no... Uh... I had no idea that that would be what history would show. Um, but I think that they presented material in a, perhaps in a little more um, hands-on way because of the text that explained why you did things, which was the, the fact, the, the element that was missing from stick control and syncopation. And even the Chapin book didn't have much text guiding you to the musical applications of the material. Exactly. When I look at the art of bop drumming, this was, we're going to look at three of them today, the art of bop drumming, beyond bop, and then your new book we'll talk extensively about. But when I look at this book, what's different about it is you still have all the independence exercises, you might call them, some primers on, on, on basic stuff, a big section on brushes, but the music is presented as the music of... You know, here's Kenny Clark or Max or Tony or all these guys. And not Tony yet in this book. It's about about uh, Bob. But uh, and then the music is the the, the the literature is presented in musical phrases that really speak to the drummer in a way that can be immediately applied. Whereas um, no slight on the Chapin book and all, but it wasn't set in a musical background. Well, I think that's something that people uh, appreciate ab about those bo the books of mine and that the text gives some context also. Exactly. Um, the phrases are the real phrases that people play and then the text helps you figure out why they played them and where you might use them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it became, it became a staple. A lot of teachers use it. I, I use it. Um, the, um, the, the next book, though, Beyond Bob Drumming, which is one of my favorite books ever. You know, at the time we were in North Texas was a time when the drummers were starting to absorb the lessons of the, the drummers from the late middle and late 60s, right, with a broken-up type of feel. And that was kind of the dominant feeling among the drummers when I was there. You've got some great—I'm going to read from your book. Roy Haynes, who was called the father of modern drummer, drumming and still sounds fresh today, and Mel Lewis— who had been credited with introducing the important idea of the open beat. Now, by employing broken time, these men, in essence, told their bandmates that each player in the ensemble was responsible for keeping his own time, and as drummers, they weren't going to babysit. Expand upon well, that. Well, we still have that, uh, that issue at times. But uh, the drummers played in a, in a more without sound well in a more free-flowing way and a less somewhat predictable way even though the pulse was still strong the way the pulse was distributed and divided between events um was was a little more dispersed the one wasn't necessarily accented in the same way uh, so phrases became longer uh, more sort of cross rhythms, hemiolas. Um, and it just opened up things for the drummer and required 
a greater consciousness and rhythmic stability from the other musicians. So articulate, so well articulated. Now, it wasn't just the drumming that changed. As always, the music was changing, too. So instead of lines like from bebop, there were longer themes like um, Nefertiti or things like that. That uh, To read from your book again, as the 60s began, band leaders were asking for and expecting more from their drummers. The music's slower-moving harmonic rhythm, as just mentioned, created a fresh environment and presented opportunities for collective interaction that had been inconceivable just a few years earlier. As a result, drummers had to become both more complete and more imaginative as musicians because above all their traditional functions, they now found themselves with the substantial additional responsibility of creating new sonic milieus for the new music to work. So like, like any contribution or advancement or change, it's the whole music that changes, right? It's the whole music that changes, and rarely are the drummers the ones that uh, initiate the change. You know, we're primarily accompanists, so we're modifying the things we know to fit whatever the new formation is, the new feeling, the new direction that, that composers uh, bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And in this book, Beyond Bob Drumming, I think this was the first book I ever saw that, that laid that out, that stuff mm-hmm. from the 60s, you know, that, that changed everything. And it changed the way even big band was played, right? You're an exponent of that when you play with Woody's band and, and now you still do the Vanguard gig, right? Yeah, yeah. That's still coming from this direction into a big band updated for today? I think so, but I think maybe, you know, uh, Ed Sof was was uh, forecasting that in the 60s with the way he played and and maybe some other people maybe even before that Shelly Mann in a way uh and of course Mel Lewis Mel, yeah uh, but but for me the first sort of vivid example of the more modern approach to playing big band the first example I heard was Ed Sof playing yeah I think so too and we heard yeah. it on those old early lab band albums 66 and 7 I think those are probably still available right yeah, and also the uh, the Woody Herman record, Giant Steps, in particular. Absolutely. And I spoke yeah. to him about that and how he had brought that style into uh, modern big band playing. And he said sometimes the band wasn't ready for it. And they might just fall apart. And Woody took him aside and he said, I hear what you're doing, but just a little bit at a time. <laughs> well, yeah, we need to introduce these things so that people continue to trust us. You know, that's a big part of, of music and the, the signals we send each other. People need to trust each other. So if you lay a whole mess of abstract stuff on them all at once, they lose confidence in in themselves and in us. And then it becomes more of a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you can if you can. You know, show a little bit of this kind of motivic material and they they have a chance to grasp it then you can you can build on that um, right. right yeah it's a process and and also i think the the playing behind it, it, it got a little more towards a big band but when the soloists were there it was more like a contemporary combo agreed yeah and mel was really really responsible for that mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, Ed and other people afterwards. Right. Let me show you some of these books for the people who haven't seen them yet. There's The Art of Bob Drumming and then Beyond Bob. And do you think of this next book as a part of a triptych? Or, I mean, it's an updated earlier book, but they seem to go very well together. Um, I Well, I think it has components that the other books don't have. And it, it also um, just fortifies the concepts of the prior books and, uh, and shows you how you can take them even further. Right. Well, you start with something you call headroom. Tell us what headroom is. Uh, headroom is the idea that you need to have more capacity than the job requires. And I remember as a kid hearing that term being used in relation to stereo equipment and power of an amplifier, and also in relation to cars. And I think the analogy I use in the book is if you have a car that's capable of a maximum speed of 60 miles an hour, when it's going 60, that's all you've got. But if you have a Ferrari that can go 200 miles an hour, when it's going 60, it's a, a breeze. And all of the capacity above 60 miles an hour uh, is what makes that thing work so well at 60. So that doesn't mean everybody needs to be able to play like Buddy Rich or Vinnie Caliuta. Mm -hmm. But whatever setting you're in, you want to have more capacity than the the setting requires so that you can play with the flow so you can play with the relaxation and so that your ears are open to hear what the other musicians are playing mm -hmm. rather than stressing about can i keep my hi-hat on two and four at this tempo right right uh and through that chapter you've got all kinds of and this is what i dig you've got these musical phrases that are groups of three four five six eight, seven but you, you say in the video, there's some great videos. By the way, the book is laid out wonderfully. Joe Bergamini does a great job. Um, the Very concise and, and, and easy to understand. And also you've got audio and video examples online that tie into this. But when you play through these exercises, I heard you say, now that's not music, which I really appreciated because you're making a distinct difference between we're playing phrases here, we're playing exercises here. That's not the music part. This is what you do to get ready to play music. Well, it's fitness training. You know, uh, baseball players lift weights. Well, the bat isn't that heavy. The ball mm -hmm. isn't that heavy. But they want to become stronger overall. Uh, and so these are the kinds of exercises, the kind of drumming fitness that makes the things that we have to do normally easier. So that's providing some headroom. Some, when you get these things together, you have headroom for the more uh, commonplace stuff that you play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I kind of skipped ahead because there's a primer in the beginning that I really like, too, about sticks, about holding the sticks and all. And, um, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, I don't know if you can see this on camera, German, right, and French and American. And then you have uh, traditional and matched and... And whether or not the fulcrum is closed or open and all this stuff the drummers have argued about forever. And Steve Smith in his book talks about asymmetrical grips, 
right? So all of a sudden, it's not like a right and a wrong way to do it. It has to it, whatever sounds works for you and sounds musical. But you listed in terms of two grips, loose grip and a tight grip. Uh, I don't know if you call it a tight grip, but... Um, yeah. 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 So a firm grip, it's a firm grip and loose grip. And that made a lot of sense to me. Talk about that. Well, I think that the we have a couple of options. We can either try and control movement down to the drum and up from the drum, or we can allow the fact that the stick might want to rebound, we can try and capitalize on that. And so in the firm grip, you're controlling motion down and up. In the loose grip, you're allowing the stick to fly into the surface and propel your hand back up. So that those are the main things. That's a great way to look at it, though. It's very concise. And, and now you also show about improvising with these phrases in music. You start off with Mary Had a Little Lamb. Playing time and go dot, dot, boop, boop, dot, 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 boop, boop, bop, right? And then the next time through it's da, but dot, 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 dot. And it gets into boop, dot, boop, dot, dot, boom, dot, dot, boom. And improvising and adding triplets and all that stuff. But you show how you can take just the simplest of melodies and use melody as your guide and you'll never get lost. You always know where fours and eights are in choruses, and uh, it can be infinite in how you expand it. That's a very well, very well put way to look at it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think we have the technical side of things, but then we really have to figure out how we're going to use those skills in a musical setting. And so that's a little example of how to how to use the coordination stuff that that you've cultivated to generate some kind of musical ideas. Wonderfully laid out. Now, uh, macro and micro timing. What are we getting at there? Um, when I listen to certain drummers, uh, I hear an incredible consistency of tempo from the beginning of the song to the end of the song. And that I would call macro time. And then micro timing is how accurately are the subdivisions between the beats placed. And so it's possible to have really good macro time, but for the micro time to be a little weird. And maybe, maybe I shouldn't say this, but a lot of people think that Elvin Jones kind of has that characteristic. I will definitely confirm that his macro time is excellent. And some people think the internal part is a little wobbly and that makes it hard to transcribe or hard to follow. Whereas some other drummers have really good synchronization of the coordination elements, but maybe over the course of seven or eight minutes, the tempo really accelerates. And so I would say their micro timing is really good, but their macro timing isn't uh, as, as good. That's very that interesting. Now, that doesn't mean that the music that they play isn't as good. It just means that the tempo isn't as good. I understand. It's just one element of the music, and it's not a pejorative, you're saying. But um, in, in one of your books, you talked about Jack D. Jeanette's story where he talks about a clothes in a dryer, and they're going around at a continuous speed. But inside that, the clothes are falling willy-nilly kind of at all different speeds and, and, and force. And uh, he made that correlation to music. That was very interesting. 
Yeah. So where's the accent? If the accent, if the laundry always falls down at the bottom of the, the rotation, then the accent is always on one. But if it can fall in different places, then even though the, the, the machine is rotating at a fixed rate, mm-hmm. which we could, we could equate with the measure or the four bars or whatever, that's four bars that that takes. Well, if the accent is always on beat one of every four bars, musically things are kind of stale. But if the accents are shifting and in a somewhat unpredictable way, even though the four bars are stable, then there's some intrigue and there's some different kinds of tension created in the music. Right. So it's not offered as a pejorative. I mean, we've heard people say the great drummers make their living in the space between the notes. Um, Yes, yes, and in the notes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, you know, now we have people playing with synthesizers, uh, uh, sequencers, loops, all those things that would tend towards more the micro timing, right? Well, I think when you play with a, sequ- a sequencer, it's responsible for the macro time. Mm-hmm. And then what you do inside of it, um, you know, a lot of drummers like uh, Chris Dave and uh, Questlove, they're moving things around on the micro level to make the the Mac the the pulse feel um, in a particular way, and they're doing it in, in some some fashions that uh, that jazz drummers rare, rarely explored, mm-hmm. and that's cool. because they have the stability of of a backing track or a sequence or a click. And they have a really good sense of the beat as well. That's a whole different way of thinking about things. Yeah. Yeah. But one intriguing. The, very intriguing. Yeah, yeah. That subject of another book, maybe. Uh, <laughs> one of the things you put together in a way I've never seen, I'm going to offer it on the screen here, is a, a, a method of writing these metric modulations that are such an important part of this music in a way that's very concise. I'm going to put that on the screen you know, as a uh, fair use, I'm not giving away your book. I'm just showing a little bit of it. And you see that you're talking here about the first measure is just straight time. Ding, 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 ding. Then you divide it into quarter note triplets. Then it keeps doubling and doubling and doubling. And, uh, but in modulated ways, and there's a video of you doing it. I'm going to play just, this is less than two minutes. Is that all right? Yeah. So each, each one of these are played twice, I think. That's the first one, the one on the right would be the second one, second line would be the third one. Triple time. 
That's the fifth one. The fifth one, I'm sorry, you're right. Now back down the, the ladder. Sixth one. Wonderful, man. Now, I've never seen that presented that cleanly and precisely that really demonstrates where that's at. And so congratulations on that. That's just wonderful. But, but but the thing to remember is rarely is that happening that way in the music. It's the, the phrases, the musical phrases are laid inside of these subdivisions and they're switching and moving all the time collectively and singularly in groups like the Miles Davis quintet of the late sixties. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was definitely the, the group that I heard at the forefront of, of that sort of exploration. I should just clarify one thing. I think that the audio example you showed was slightly different than the, the, the text. I play it two different ways. Right. And so the, the text that you showed was actually the audio, the video was the first example, but the text was from the second example where my feet also modulated at the tempo. So the yep. te text looked like my feet were modulating. But in that example, the video, my feet were staying in the slow 4-4. Four, four. And that's mention, definitely the way, that's the way to work on it first. Right. Sorry. I was going to mention that, and I, I pulled the wrong one up, but I was going to mention you do it both ways. And yeah. um, But the, again, the key is that they're, they're, they're pulling these things in fragments. You know, Miles would play something and Tony would answer it or vice versa. And you're hearing these, and Ron would go with him, you're hearing these subdivisions change all the time, collectively. I mean, that's, that takes some some work. Well, and it creates a, a kind of fluidity and a different kind of intrigue um, in the music uh, that was an area that they wanted to expand. Mm-hmm. Because ding, ding, a 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 ding for 10 minutes felt kind of stale to them. So they're trying to find ways to to enliven it. And there's a record that I mentioned in the Beyond Bob drumming, the Witten Marsalis Standard Time Volume 1, where they explore these things. And in a way, they play them cleaner than Miles's band did. So that might something to check out to to hear it more clearly right it had they been more codified by then, you know yeah they sort of quantized the exploration of what tony and herbie mm -hmm. were doing mm -hmm. now this style this is not for everybody right i mean there there are some jazz gigs you'll do where you really can't play this way oh there's a lot of jazz gigs where you won't where the other musicians won't send a signal that they would desire the music to go in that direction. 
Exactly. You know, yeah. Um, one of the things young drummers yeah. do, I remember when I was a kid, I was 17, I had a gig at, uh, or 18, I guess, 17, Six Flags Over Georgia with a Dixieland band. And I had just gone to North Texas and was hip to Elvin and Paul Motion and Jack T. Jeanette and Tony. And and uh, you can't play that way in a Dixieland band or they're, you're known as the drummer who used to have that gig. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um I was talking to Paul Motion one time and he told me how much he at that time was listening to Kenny Clark. Hmm. And he hmm. had just come across this audio interviews of Kenny Clark, which maybe you've heard some of, but there's like three or four or five hours of Kenny Clark talking about how he came up in the thirties and how things evolved. And, and that's what was intriguing Paul, you know, in, in 2005 or whatever year that was. Mm -hmm. So, Things never really become old-fashioned, and the information is there that we can take uh, and expand on, learn from, expand on. Now, I also talked to uh, Paul, um, Marty Morell at one point, who has uh, followed uh, later on in that Bill Evans trio, and I said, "This isn't something you probably never mentioned off the bandstand, isn't it?" He said, "Yeah, we never, we never talked about it ever." Right. Right. Amazing. No, people assume if you can hear it, or if I suggest it and you can hear it, then you'll do something with it. If I suggest it and you can't hear it, then my explaining it to you probably isn't going to make the music any better. That's a good point. Yeah, you hear it or you don't. Um, moving through your book, I, and we'll finish this quickly, we got... Chapter three, you talk about the four important elements of, of music is technique, groove, creativity, musicianship. And they all go hand in hand. You want to expand upon that a little bit? I think that's the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, you talk about building musical phrases. You talk about song form. You talk about drumming words. I've never seen that term before. I like that. What would a drumming word be? A phrase? Better to depth. That's a drum word. And uh, every and that's drummer. That's Max Roach, though, if people don't know. Yeah. And so ha having a handle on some of that stuff kind of um, fortifies the skeleton of everything else you play. Mm -hmm. um, well, you name this people, book the. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. You name this book, the master drummer expanded edition, how to practice, play and think like a pro. This is not a beginner's book. This is really good. Great, uh, exposition on some complicated stuff that's so well put together and will make it a lot easier for people to understand. And then there's a lot of playing examples and, 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 uh, solos that you not only play, but you break down and talk about the phrases. So, you know, if I were evaluating this book, five out of five, man, 10 out of 10, <laughs> whatever, whatever you got, fingers and toes, 20 out of 20. Um, did you visualize these as a, uh, you didn't start out that way, but like as a triptych with uh, Bob drumming beyond Bob and then the master drummer? No, I didn't. I, I envisioned three books in the beginning. And in fact, the, the first book I wrote was three books. It was The Art of Bob Drumming, Beyond Bob Drumming, and uh, 
a book on big band drumming. And this was all in one folder. And when the publisher saw that, they said, well, that's way too big. Mm -hmm. You have to split this thing up. So that became the, the art of Bob drumming and then beyond Bob drumming. And I could never convince anybody to fund the proper kind of big band recording that, that would have been required to make the third book. So that went by the wayside. Um, but there, you know, so I never really thought of them as, I thought of those first two as sequential. I see. Um, Man, do you still teach at the Manhattan School of Music? I do. Where else yes. do you teach? Uh, I'm teaching about two days a week at the Manhattan School of Music and one day a week at Kutztown University in Pennsylvania, which I have a house in Pennsylvania and an apartment in New York. Beautiful. Now, let me ask you this. There's been a, uh, the book, well-noted, wonderful book. I love it. Let's talk about some other things. The quality of the kids coming through the music programs, pretty amazing. Uh, in many ways, very amazing. And in other ways, uh, sometimes missing some real basic fundamentals. Um, but amazing in other ways in terms of technical, technical or coordination or speed. Mm. Um, but the whole picture, the whole package, to get the whole package uh, from an 18-year-old is still pretty rare. Let's talk about that because there's a lot of YouTube sensation drummers now who have come up doing covers and doing, I don't know, they're wonderful players. They, I can't do what they can do. But they've been described by some of the older players as, uh, you know, Roy Burns used to call them Olympic drummers. And uh, our friend Adam Nussbaum has a great quote. He says, way too much of not enough. <laughs> now, we're not here to insult other drummers, but to, to lift everyone. But um, is that some of the qualities you find that are missing in that? How are those kids? Are they moving into the schools? Or are they just doing their own thing? Well, I don't know about specific people. No, I really wasn't focusing on a, a person. Yeah, um, some of those guys are coming into school. And look, drums, there's a, uh, a huge technical component to playing the drums. And so I mentioned those four qualities. The easiest one of the four to get good at is technique. And that's because you can do that by yourself in your house. And it's also the easiest one to measure progress with you have a metronome okay i can play paradiddles at 80. well last week i could only play them at 72. next week i want to play them at 90. before you know it you're playing them at 250. um but that doesn't have any bearing on what happens when when you have to play with a bass player um so what i see um often is people with an incredible muscular development um, but not really understanding how to use it and in a way when i was 16 17 years old studying with joe morello i don't know if i should admit this admit this but if i put a metronome on now i could probably couldn't play as fast now as i did then 
but I didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And when I did do something with it, it usually wasn't very musical. So the technical side of things, whether it's hand speed or double pedal or cross sticking or any of that kind of stuff, that's pretty easy, not not simple, but easy to to expand on, easy to see progress on by yourself. But then what happens in context? It's like the the baseball player who can lift 700 pounds but can't see the, the fastball coming at him. Um, the golfing gorilla, you know that joke? Puts, yes. puts the ball on a tee, hits it 300 yards straight as an arrow, lands on the green, walks up, hits it 300 yards straight as an arrow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, uh, I can only say I echo that, that what, what you talked about in terms of fulfilling this too, I I had a steady for a long time with a great band in Atlanta and I had a great bass player. And, uh, there were nights when I would say, man, we nailed it tonight. Every note was right where it should be. It was perfect. And that meant nothing to me by the time I got to the car. But if I had a night where I thought, man, I played some shit I didn't know I was going to play, or I don't know where that came from, or that was creative, you know, that felt good the next day. Mm -hmm. yeah and sometimes the the guys that um can play super fast on a pad don't hear the possibilities to embellish that that might be creative Mm -hmm. it's just like a button that they turn on Mm -hmm. Uh, so getting and look getting experience playing with a band can help temper some of those uh, virtuosic sides. So mm-hmm. it's not, uh, I respect people that have worked on the components of their playing that they're able to work on in the circumstance that they're in. But, but that's, that's not the end of the story. That's a part of the, a piece of the puzzle, which, you know, the other pieces are creativity and groove and musicianship. Musicianship is the context where you put that speed, where you put the double pedal, where you put the crossovers. Um, do you put them in places wh- that enhance the music? Does it feel like it's in good taste? Is it inspiring the people you're playing with? Those are the important elements. Well said. And now those are the things you learn on the bandstand, generally speaking. Uh, there are fewer opportunities these days don't you think i mean what do you worry about all these great kids who are coming up under your guidance and many of the other great teachers out there that um or or it's just music will find a way i mean where where do you weigh in on that uh well i don't know it seems like the day i moved to to new york a hundred other drummers moved to new york Mm -hmm. and 98 of them played better than me but but five years later, 80 of them were gone. Mm-hmm. And 10 years later, 90 of them were gone. And now I can tell you there's Adam Nussbaum and Kenny Washington and a couple, a couple other guys that all arrived at about the same time. Um, so it's never been easy. Um, I think, you know, people are playing at, in general, playing at a higher level 
than ever before. Um, and there are opportunities. There's always opportunities for, for exceptional musical players. Um, so I'm not worried about the young guys, the ones that do the work and have the right kind of comprehension about what the challenge is, they're going to succeed. Great point. But if you think just getting getting another 10 beats on the metronome is the thing that's missing in your career or for your career to take off, uh, uh, something's out of proportion. Perfect. Uh, I've been remiss. Let me put a couple of spots in here and we'll come back and wrap up. Hang, hang tight a sec. Okay. Hello, everyone. My name is David Victor. I'm general manager with the Craviato Drum Company. We wanted to offer a one-ply solid shell product but we wanted it to stay true to our mission of offering handmade drums of uncompromised quality built here in the USA. So take a listen to our Center Stage Series drum set. Memphis Drum Shop is the world's premier provider of percussion instruments. With six showrooms of gear, MySymbol.com, the Memphis Gong Chamber, and a first-rate repair department, turn to Memphis Drum Shop for all your percussion needs. All right, we're talking with John Riley, famed New York drummer, Vanguard Orchestra, among many credentials. Uh, his new book, John Riley, The Master Drummer Expanded Edition, How to Practice, Play, and Think Like a Pro. If you're just joining us, you're going to want to run back and look at this one because it's chock full of great information. John, thank you for doing the show. A couple of little questions. What was your relationship like with Mel Lewis? Wasn't he sort of a drum father to you and Nussbaum and... The guys you mentioned, maybe Dennis and uh, people who came up when you did. And Danny Gottlieb, I think, yeah. was also. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Mel at, at times was like a grouchy old man, but he loved drummers. He loved music and he was always trying to, to give people pointers about how to how to do the job better. Um, the pointers were never done at the drum set. They were always either come and listen to me at the club or come over to my apartment and, and you can spend a day listening to records with me. And so that was the kind of mentorship, uh, that he provided. And, uh, it was, it was great to, to have that kind of relationship with him and then to play the music that was written for the way he played uh, for as long as I've been doing it um, has really been educational and enlightening uh, and enjoyable. I, I'm, I haven't had the chance to hear you live with that band. Whenever I come to town, you're, you're, you're on the road, but uh, you're still holding court with the Vanguard Orchestra at the Village Vanguard weekly, bi-weekly. When, when do you do that? It's every Monday. Uh, and As it has been for, what, 30 years or something? Actually, I've been there 30 years, but <laughs> the band started in 1965. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same book. Uh, it's been expanded. There's about 300 arrangements in the book. And this past Monday, we played two or three things that we hadn't played since before the pandemic. Hmm. And, um, man, they still sound good. The writing, the writing is incredible. 
Speaking of the pandemic, kind of shut New York down for a while. Everybody's starting to get back to normal. You doing all right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Monday night, it's at the Vanguard, uh, I would say, for the last five or six months. Almost every Monday night's been sold out. Beautiful. So it's uh, it feels great that people are curious about the music and uh, and the band is sounding good. Well, if you're in New York on a Monday night, you got to go down to the Vanguard and hear John with the Vanguard Orchestra. Um, anything else you want to touch on? Or? Oh, no, I'm just happy to discuss music and, and drumming in general with you, Michael, since, you know, I don't know if people know how accomplished you are as a player. So I, I appreciate sharing this opportunity with you. Well, you're very kind, and I'm uh, delighted to call you my friend. Hang tight, and I'm going to tell you, wrap things up here, and we'll, we can talk a bit after the show. Uh, everybody, thank you for watching. Um, a bunch of new people coming up. Just watch for the listings, and we'll see you next time on Drummer Nation Live. Take care. Thanks, everybody.